The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. With you this morning, Mark chapter 2 is where we'll be. Last week, uh, we kind of got the introductory idea. We're going to fly through the book of Mark uh, really fast. And uh, last week, we talked sort of the introductory idea um, that Mark is going to be talking to us about this powerful, amazing uh, Jesus who is working and he is doing things. Um, He's doing incredible things. He's doing them with authority. There's a lot of action. You move from one action to another action in Mark. There's not a lot of sitting around and hearing Jesus talk, to be honest, um, in the book of Mark. He kind of flies from, Jesus did this, and he did this, and he did this. Um, So there's a lot of that happening um, in this book. So you'll see that again today, a lot of action um, going on. Um, And it's at this furious pace that Mark has us on. And Here's what's going to happen today. And again, I think we lose this just because of our culture and we're not, you know, in the the immediacy of when this book was written. Um, But I kind of look at it this way, that we're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and he's he's doing his draft picks right now. Um, Anybody do fantasy football? Any of the guys in here, or ladies, whatever, do fantasy football? I don't want to sell you all short. Um, So he's, this is draft pick. He's doing his drafts today. And and you're going to see another thing today where he goes and he calls another person to follow him. And he's basically drafting a kicker in the second round, guys. That's what he's about to do. All right? He's picking his defense in the third round. You're like, whatever, you're crazy. Um, and so we're going to see that uh, a little bit today when he makes um, this call um, that he makes for Matthew. So look in um, chapter 2, verse 14. It just says, just this one verse, it says that as Jesus passed by, <clears throat> he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. So here we are again. We have this, we talked about it last week. We'll, we'll look at it quite a bit again today uh, with this idea of Jesus coming up to people and saying, follow me. And he does it again. He does it to, uh, to Matthew here. And he says to him, follow me. What does it look like to follow Christ? Well, we see a little bit of that here in this text. It means that you're going to get up and you're going to go where he wants you to go and you're going to follow him into his works. You're going to do what he's doing, right? It's, this, this goes way back um, in my spiritual journey, and for maybe for some of y'all too, but there was a great spiritual guide that kind of came out, um, I'm going to say 20 years ago probably, maybe more, called Experiencing God. Did anybody ever walk through that, that curriculum or that help? It's very, very good. It really has stood the test of time um, in terms of the, the content. And in that book, um, the author talks about following Christ, and he has these realities that go along with following Christ. His sixth reality was this. Um, Henry Blackaby wrote that, and he says, the sixth reality of following Christ means that you have to make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. You have to make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. So Old Testament, let me give an example of what that might look like. There's a a guy in the Old Testament, his name was Elisha. Now, not Elijah, but Elisha, okay? And the beginning of his story is very interesting. It looks a lot like this story we're reading here about Jesus. And Elijah comes along, and Elisha's like, I want to come follow you. I want to join you in your ministry. He's like, but first I have to go home and take care of some stuff. And he's like, hey, whatever, man, I didn't call you. You're the one that asked to follow me. And so Elisha goes home, and here's what he does. Some text, it's kind of a weird text. It reads oddly. But it looks like he went home, and he had 24 oxen, and he killed all of them. Slaughters all 24 of the oxen that he'd, be, he'd been using out in his fields, or maybe even communally using in the fields with other farmers. Slaughters them, cooks them, shares them with the whole town, and he leaves everything to follow Elijah. Now, what exactly does that hold for us? It could be that those oxen just sort of represent for us, they show us that sometimes the very thing that seems good and it's right in front of me is the thing that has to be released in order for me to follow God's plan for my life. 
That is very difficult for us to wrap our minds around because I think we want to believe and I think we're being taught in American Christianity that it's everything you want in life and God. That it's everything you want in the American dream and Jesus. And I think Jesus kind of comes along to me and to you and he walks in front of us and he's like, follow me. And sometimes that means that the very thing that's right in front of us that looks like it's the best thing in our lives is the very thing we kind of have to give up to go follow Christ. So we see that, I think, in that story of Elijah. So what was holding him, what would be holding back Elisha back in those days? Well, it would have been wealth. If he had 24 oxen, he was a wealthy guy. If he had two oxen, he was a wealthy guy. But if he had 24, then he was wealthy. He had his work to do. He'd been out plowing in the fields. This constant idea that the plow and the field was why I'm here. And sometimes for some of us, we get caught up in the dailiness of life. Raising kids is why I'm here. Being married is why I'm here. Going to work is why I'm here. Sometimes we have to subjugate. We have to submit those things to the higher call of why we're here. Why we're really here, this call that Christ has on our lives. So he had to put those things aside. There were 12 things or 24 things or two things, however you read that text about Elisha, that were keeping him from fully committing to what it was that God has for him. How many times are the most visible things in our lives the very things that keep us from committing to fully following Jesus? Some of us are looking for this secret to following Christ. I think we read these texts. I think, I really do. I think we read Mark and, and we're seeing he comes to these fishermen and he says, follow me. And he comes to these other two guys and he says, follow me. And he comes to Matthew, the tax collector, and he says, follow me. And we read it like it's a quaint fairy tale. Like that's sweet. That's nice. They got up and followed him. And I think we just absolutely miss that he's going to grown human beings who have lives and jobs. And he says, follow me. And they get up and they follow him. And it is just that simple. It really is. There's not a secret involved. He didn't whisper in their ear, and I'm going to give you a Bentley. Come follow me, right? I'm going to give you a thousand camels. Come follow me. And all Mark wrote down was follow me. There's not another book somewhere that's telling us why these men followed him. Christ comes in and says, follow me. They count that cost to some degree, and they get up and they follow. And they leave things and they go with him. Maybe the thing or the things that are keeping you from being all in and following him and following Christ are the things that are right in front of you. The act of getting rid of them. Some of you are like, oh, here we go again. I've got to get rid of stuff in my life and purge and just whatever. And everybody's always in church telling me to give stuff up. Here's what I would say for most of us. I really don't think for most of us it's a matter of leaving your job or leaving your family or anything like that. I think it's inverting their importance in your heart. We have so elevated work and family and children and spouses and happiness and health and all these things to this position in our lives that we can't follow Christ because he's probably going to demand us to walk down a road that doesn't lead to those places. So we just have the wrong things in the wrong order of value and importance in our lives. So it's reordering those things in our lives, making major adjustments to our lives in order to follow God into the work that he's already doing. In the book of Mark, he's going to come and say, follow me. He'll make that call to the 12 disciples. He's effectively making that call to all these people who are following him, these thousands of people who are following him. And then for 2,000 years, he's making the same call to us. Follow me, follow me, follow me. What are some of the adjustments we see in the book of Mark? Like these people who get up and follow him, what are some of the things they do? They submit to him. They say, man, I've got dreams and goals and aspirations and ideas about what life is supposed to be like. I'm going to put them aside in order to follow you because I think your way will be better than my way. I think your goals, dreams, and aspirations for my life will be better. So I'm going to submit them to what you want for me. So they submit to him. It's kind of a, a whatever may come. Uh, one of the things I love about it is that he goes to these guys and he says, hey, you guys follow me, these fishermen. They get up and they follow him. He immediately takes them to go do an exorcism. <laughs> That's probably not what they were thinking, right? We're going to go sit and have, you know, fireside chats with Jesus, you know, and s'mores and talk about God and all that. And he takes them to an exorcism. And the two or three passages later, the next thing he does, he goes, and I'm going to go touch a leper with you. How's that? 
So it's really this idea of follow me, submit yourself to me, and, and our attitude is my major adjustment has to be whatever may come. I remember a guy years ago, I'm not going to say his name, some of you would know who it was, and he did some pretty radical things in Christianity. And somebody asked him, he said, what about the difficulties, man? When you're on that road and you're following the Lord and you're doing what he's called you to do, what about when it gets hard? And he said, the difficulties of following him can't be the thing that keep me from following him. The obstacles that are in the path that he has set for me can't be the thing that keeps me from following him. Whatever may come, submitting to him, whatever may come. Here's the other thing, and I wrote it this way. I said, I'm going to be confronted about the old Joe. When you follow Christ, he is consistently looking at you and going, that's old you. That's old you, and that needs to go. That can't be who follows me. That's not who I want to follow me. I love you, and I'm glad you're here. But if we're going to keep walking this road together, that's got to go. You're, you're going to be constantly confronted about how you see God, how you see the world, how you see yourself, how you see other people. And stuff's going to have to be taken off and new things have to be put on. Constantly confronted about the old you. There's a rejection you're going to experience and a new acceptance you're going to experience. There's going to be faith involved, man, faith to do things and go places and follow him places. You're going to leave things behind. You're going to love God more purely. All these things are going to kind of come along the way for you as you follow Christ. And that's what he says to him. That's what it looks like. And again, we looked at that story of Elisha and what it looks like to kind of leave things behind us. And that sounds really simple. We'll just get up and follow him. But man, it's always complicated. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't want to, I'm not talking to you like you're stupid. I want to talk to you like you're educated people. I understand that what I'm saying to you, Christ calls us to follow him and leave things behind. That's hard. And there are complications involved with this idea of following him. And the first thing I want to say about complications as we look at this story is that Matthew was a tax collector. And we're going to re-hit this, this fact several times as we talk about this today. But Matthew was a tax collector. So what does Matthew have to do when he says, follow me? What does he have to do to get up and follow Jesus? What did he leave behind? Well, here's what he left behind. When Matthew got up and walked away from his life to follow Christ, here's what he's leaving behind. The entire weight of the Roman industry and system was behind him doing his job. So here's the way it worked. If you're a Roman tax collector, they're like, hey, you've got to give us 5%. People have to give us a 5% tax. Anything else you collect, you can keep. Now just think about that. So I don't take my army or my, my soldiers and burst your door down because you didn't pay me 5%. I take my army and burst your door down because you didn't pay me an additional 15%. And the weight of the Roman army was mine to command to come and to coerce you. It's like the mob rule, right? It's like the, the mob in New York City. You're paying a protection fee from them. <laughs> so the mob won't beat you up. Same thing was true here. He is giving that up. The authority and the weight of the Roman Empire to make him rich. He's going to pass on that. So he's giving up that. He's giving up friends and his father. It's interesting. He says his son of Alphaeus. Maybe his dad was super proud of him. Maybe his dad was like, man, he made it. <laughs> you know, my son made it. Levi, he's the one who figured it out. We're going to be a conquered people. He has figured out how to work with the enemy and make it work. Right? So his, whatever his father and family may have thought of him, I have in my head, he's sitting at the tax collector table, right? He's sitting at the tax booth, which would be the gate into the city. So as you came in, you paid him a tax. If you went to work that day and you were a fisherman, you gave him fish when you came back in the city. This is the way this worked. It was like a daily thing that he was going through. So he's sitting at the tax booth, and I'm seeing like bags of money and fish sitting all around him, you know? Like, this is my stuff. This is my kingdom. You're entering my world. And Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. He has to get up and physically leave that. Can you imagine being in your bank? Maybe some of us are like, it's not that big a deal, Joe, really. But you're sitting in your bank with your piles of cash and all your cars and your house and all that. And Jesus comes and says, hey, follow me. That's what's happening here. So the money, the riches, whatever he's got around him, local prominence, people hated him, but he was also a very powerful man. Comfort, ease, if he wanted it, he could have it. 
Some of us are like, man, God, all I want in life is just comfort. Just make my life easier. Just give me some joy in this life. And he, Jesus comes along and says, leave it and follow me. Leave that and follow me. The coolest part about Jesus calling him to leave was that Jesus didn't care where he was coming from. I love that part of this, this story. Jesus looks at him and says, dude, I know. I see your money. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I don't care. Come follow me. Man, I love that. He doesn't look back and say, wow, that's a lot. You probably want to think twice about that. So I'm going to let you choose, <laughs> right? He's like, no, follow me. I'm better. What I have for you is better. He doesn't care what he's coming from or where he's coming from. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care where you've been. He welcomes in sweet friends like Martha and Mary and Lazarus. I'm not going to talk about who they are. They're, his, they're Jesus' friends, man, like his inner circle. And he loves them and he welcomes them in and serving Barnabas and Acts. Just sweet Barnabas when you get to the book of Acts. And Jesus says to all of them, come follow me. But he also says, follow me to the thief on the cross and prostitutes, and cheaters, and liars, and thieves, and murderers. He looks at them, and he says, follow me. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Aren't we glad that he does that? Man, it's called grace. And if you look at that, and you're like, man, that is so backwards. That's so upside down. Yes, it is. It doesn't make any sense. It makes zero sense whatsoever. But it's grace. Matter of fact, we might even look at that and say, that's kind of unjust, Jesus. You should have come, and you should have asked, you know, Nicodemus and maybe John and James because they're young and they haven't, they're dumb. They haven't figured stuff out yet. Just, you know, call the good people to follow you. And immediately, Jesus is dealing with demoniacs, lepers, and tax collectors. And I'm so glad that he is, that he's not here for justice at this point. It's grace. So that's what he has to leave behind to follow Christ. Verse 15. And it happened that he's, so that's, there's something that happens between verse 14 and 15. Matthew gets up and follows him. Here's verse 15. And it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in his house. Whose house? Matthew's house. So we've gone from, hey, follow me and leave all your stuff to being in Matthew's house, hanging out, having a meal with him. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. And his disciples. For there were many of them. And look, and they were following him. One verse later, we've gone from Matthew, follow me, to being in Matthew's house, to all these tax collectors and sinners, and they're all following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors? And sinners. What did Matthew gain? So he leaves this stuff. What does he gain? He gains joy. And it's one of my favorite Christmas songs that we sing. It's joy. It's unspeakable joy. He gains an unspeakable joy. And what's the first thing he does? He throws a party. That's the first thing Matthew does. Hey guys, listen, this guy called me to follow him. I want you to meet him. I want to celebrate whatever's going to happen in my life and whatever's happening now. I want to celebrate it with you guys. We have sung this for a long time. I can hear my mom and dad singing this in my head. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. Floods of joy o'er my soul like sea billows roll since Jesus came into my heart. That's where Matthew is, man. Matthew's in this place of joy, unspeakable joy. And then I want to share with as many people as possible. He wants to share with his friends and his, his family. And here's the other thing that I think is so cool. And I know Jesus is there and he's talking to them. He doesn't come in and say, hey, I'm going to have a seminar about who this Jesus guy is. I've got a booklet about who Jesus is. I want you to come meet Christ. I want you to come meet this man who called me to follow him, and I am following him. And I want you to meet him. So it's not a bunch of answers. It's, it's Christ. It's the person of Jesus that he wants him to have an interaction with. Certainly there's the truth of the gospel, the things that we want people to hear, the facts of the gospel. But there's also this experience of a relationship that we want people to know. Right? 
that he wanted people to know. So he throws out this party, and I was just thinking how, what a bummer it would have been if Matthew was like, hey, we're going to have this party. If I have all my friends, Jesus, I really want you to be there. What if Jesus didn't show up? I can't go there. They're all sinners and tax collectors. What would people think about me? What if I get dirty around them? What if they say something offensive? My gosh. What if they make fun of what I believe? I can't be there. That's intimidating. That's scary. It may hurt my feelings. Aren't we glad Jesus showed up? Not that he went to an isolated tax collector, and that's a beautiful story. I'm glad he called Matthew. I'm glad he showed up at this party. When there's dozens of them, maybe. I don't know. At the tax collector's guild, showing up at Matthew's house, having a party that day. I'm glad that they're all there, that Jesus showed up. He comes. At another party, we see in John, it's the very beginning of John's uh, uh, gospel story about Jesus. He comes to a party with wine. Dude, he's in. (laughs) Right? Jesus is in with these lost people. He shows up where people are. Lost people, broken people, hurting people, ugly people, offensive people. Jesus shows up where these people are at. Here's what I want to encourage all of us and you guys today. Don't insulate yourself from a broken world. We have the tendency to turn into this fortress mentality and hide in our churches. Man, don't do that. Don't insulate yourself from a broken world. We are supposed to love our neighbors and be the ambassador of Christ to them. That's what it says in Corinthians. We are his ambassador, his representative. We're supposed to love them and be the ambassador of Christ's love to them. We are not supposed to be the judgment of God on lost people. Can we kind of let ourselves free of that? Let that go? That's not our job. Our job is to be here, to be Christ's representative to them, certainly stand up for justice and what's right and wrong and all that, but not to judge them and condemn them for being lost. You can't love them if you're not around them. Loving your neighbor is not an idea. It's a practical thing. It's something you do that's very, very practical. And you can't love them if you're not around them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Didn't Jesus say, if you want to know what the whole Old Testament was about, all of Scripture, everything in the Old Testament, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. He's very clear about that. what that means because people are like, hey, who's my neighbor? They fully expect him to go, well, religious people good people, clean people, right? That's kind of what they're expecting or wanting to hear him say. He then tells a story about the worst person on the planet who's the hero of the story. So here's what he says. Love your neighbors yourself. He means your gay neighbor, your Muslim neighbor, your druggy neighbor, your atheist neighbor, not for the sake of love. And this is where we stop short so many times. We love them just to love them. Not for the sake of love, but so that they might meet Jesus in you. Do we understand that, guys? Really? First of all, we have to go love people and be around them. Secondly, it's not just to love them. It's so that they would meet Jesus in me because he has filled me with a joy that is uncontainable. And I want them to know the same joy that I have. Remember, your broken neighbors and messed up people in your life, they are somebody's one. Some grandma somewhere is probably praying for them. Some spouse or even ex-spouse is praying for them. Some child or adult child is praying for them. somebody's one, and you can be Christ's representative to that person. You could be the answer to that prayer. So I'm so glad that Jesus shows up at this party here. And again, it sounds simple. This is so great, and it's just a great story. But before we move on, I want to remind you again. I want, you, I want to remind you because I think Mark is pointing out to us several times how crazy this is that Jesus is talking to these people. It's crazy that he's not just having a conversation with them, but he's parting with them and hanging out with them and loving on them. This idea of following Jesus is just kind of nuts. In Jesus's culture, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. The only cast of people that would have been below tax collectors were lepers. That's it. You couldn't go any lower down the social scale. They were Jewish people collecting Roman taxes from other Jews. They were hated and outcasts. They were barred from going into the temple. Now just think about that. Your entire religious system revolves around the sacrificial system. At the temple, they couldn't even go in to worship. 
They couldn't be a part of normal society. They could only hang out with other tax collectors because other sinners thought they were better than them. <laughs> other people who were just wantonly sinful were like, well, at least I'm not a tax collector. That was like the bottom of the rung, man, on the ladder. But Jesus says to the tax collector, Matthew, follow me. The crowd has to have said, man, did we hear that right? Did he just say to the tax collector to follow him? There's no way an upstanding Jewish rabbi would say to a tax collector, follow me. That is exactly what Jesus did. And those two words changed Matthew forever. How awesome was that call? The eyes of the world. Man, we're just a chapter and a half into Jesus' story. The eyes of the world are on Jesus. And what does he do? He goes to the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, and he invites him in to follow him. He chose to reach out to a tax collector and ask him to follow him. It's just overwhelming when we think about this, man. He goes in and he shares meals with sinners. Now, here's what I don't think was happening. They're telling dirty jokes. I don't think Jesus is sitting around laughing with them right? They're off color. They're talking about somebody else's spouse. They're just all, all the stuff lost people do. They're lost people. They're lost guys, right? They're doing lost people's stuff. I don't think Jesus was sitting with them pretending like they're okay. He made it clear, and we're going to read it in a few sentences because they're all in earshot of this conversation that's about to happen. He makes it clear that they're sinners and that he's very aware of their sin. He makes that very clear to them. But he invited those people who were far away from God to experience God's love by following him. He didn't want to just be with people who believed what he believed or all the right things and behaved in all the right ways. He wanted to call those people who believed wrongly and behaved wrongly in order to love them so that they could know God through him. When we become, when you become an individual Christian, or we as a church become a people who demand change and morality before following Jesus, or in order to follow Jesus, we become Pharisees and not Jesus followers. When I'm requiring people to uphold a particular moral code before they follow Jesus, I am no longer asking them to follow Jesus. I've become a rule inserter into their lives. I'm a Pharisee. What could Jesus possibly be thinking when he is calling these people. He's calling men, fishermen, and rabbis. The other thing that's crazy about the story is that rabbis didn't call people. They just said, hey, I'm a rabbi, and people lined up, and then there was this interview process and this entire thing you had to go to, and he only chose the best of the best of the best. And Jesus just inverted the whole process. He's going around asking people to follow him, and the worst of the worst of the worst, the most, you know, uh, not prepared, right, and unqualified people he's asking for, the roughest guys. What are the qualifications of following Jesus? I think we, that's a question we should ask ourselves. Man, what does it take to follow him? I want you to write this down. It's kind of a long list. It's very difficult. Only a few people meet the qualifications. How many of you guys sinned this week? Put your hand up. You're lying if your hands end up or you're bored and not paying attention, okay? You qualify. Who gets to follow Jesus? Every single one of us had just raised our hands. And man, for some of us who are religious and we're Christian, that irks us a little bit. No, you have to be good to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means you're good. I'm just telling you, man, it's the other way around, guys. The best people who follow Christ are the people who struggle the most. It's people who are most real about their sin, the people who are most honest about their failures. Who qualifies to follow Jesus? The sinner. And he's going to say that very specifically here in just a moment where he talks to these people and talks to them about following me. Verse 17. Pharisees are like, why is he eating with these people? Hearing this, Jesus overhears the conversation. He says to them, is it not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick? I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The most shocking and the most amazing thing that he has done or that he has said so far is that he says, I came 
for sinners. This is very interesting to me because now he's had two opportunities to clarify why he came. We read one of them last week, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So he could have said anything in his first sermon. That was his first sermon. He chose to say that. That's very interesting. Here's his second public opportunity to maybe clarify something. And what does he say? I came for sinners. I didn't come for happiness. And I didn't come for joy. And I didn't come to eradicate evil. That bothers a lot of us in the room. I didn't come to eradicate evil. I didn't come for your pleasures now. I didn't come to teach you stuff. And I didn't come to be a moral example to you. I came for sinners because you're sick. You're soul sick. You're dead. And I came to save people out of that for sinners, for Levi, for his friends. Here's what's ironic about that statement. He's saying it to the Pharisees, and he's basically looking at them and saying, I came to save you. They're hearing his answer. Oh my gosh, he came to save the worst of the worst. When in reality, I think Jesus means the exact opposite to them. And he's like, I came to save sinners. (laughs) You. The worst lost people, (laughs) if you can say it that way, The worst lost people aren't those who are lost in their vile sins. It's those lost in the self-convinced safety of their own self-righteousness. That's the worst of the worst lost person. It's not the person who looks at themselves and goes, I'm a terrible person. It's the person who looks at themselves and says, I have made myself good. You are far, far away from the great. You have no need for grace. And God's all about grace. Jesus' message is all about grace. If you think you are making yourself better and getting to God by being good, you have absolutely no use for Jesus. He's just an add-on to you being good. Remember, nobody likes the tax man, right? Don't ever let that escape you from this story. He called the tax man. He's hanging out with tax collectors. Several years ago, some of us remember this, 2010. Remember that guy that crashed his plane into the IRS building in Austin, Texas? Remember that? Because he had years and years of just bitter disputes with them about unpaid taxes and all kinds of things. Wrote wrote a note, and he said, in his suicide note, he wrote, IRS and government, big brother, you can have your pound of flesh. Just two, three weeks ago, The IRS settled a lawsuit that they had 428 different groups brought against the IRS for abusing their position of power against them over the last seven or eight years. They just settled that lawsuit. Nobody likes the tax guy. Even today, nobody likes the tax guy. Here's what I think is awesome about this, and he clarifies it in verse 17, and he brings it to the forefront. If we miss it, he brings it to the in front of our faces. Jesus is like, he's relentless in pursuing sinners. Relentless about it. He's not worried about the hardness of their hearts or the depths of their sin or the difficulty of getting them or the potential loss that he might incur or the whispers and the scheming of men. He is pursuing ritualistically getting himself dirty in order to call a tax collector and eat in a home full of defiled sinners. He's just relentless about it. Do you understand that, that by doing this, he is now ritualistically unclean? He himself couldn't go worship in the temple because he had been in these people's home. And he's willing to risk all of it because he came for sinners And I think he's doing it now. He's doing the same thing now, pursuing sinners. All of us have our ones that we're just aching for, for them to come to know the Lord. Or we're afraid that somebody will never come to know the Lord. God, listen, he is relentless. You and I are like, man, I don't know if I can do anything else. I've done all I know to do. I've given him books. I've prayed for them. I've talked to them. I don't know what else to do. Be relentless. Join the work of God and Jesus in being relentless in pursuing the lost. You're like, I can't do anything else except pray. Holy cow, you can pray. You can pray. You can talk to the God who created that person's soul and ask him to save it. You can pray. 
Don't ever think all I can do is pray. Think that's the first thing I can do, and it touches the heart of God and his purpose for this world and his mission as to why Jesus came. I can pray. So pray. Be relentless about your pursuit of the lost person. Call on the Lord for those, per- those people. He's agreeing with you. He came to do the exact same thing, to save the sinner. Aren't you glad that he came for Matthew? Aren't you glad that he called him? And doesn't that give us great hope for us? It gives me great hope for me that he called Matthew and that he can call me. You're not too far gone. Your one's not too far gone. None of them are outside the reach of the relentless love of Jesus Christ. Then he says this. He said, I came for sinners. Who came for sinners? I came for sinners. Not a prophet, not a system, not rules. All of that stuff prepared the way. He said that last week, and now it's time. I came for sinners. I came. God came down. Glory came down. It's the only solution, the only one. There's not a plan B. The cross wasn't plan B. Like, this is it. All of history has been pointing to this time in history where Jesus comes to save sinners. And get this, man. I I was reading this, and I can't get over it this week. That's why I keep coming back to it. In this text, Jesus is with us, and he's eating with us. He's at a party with us. In our lostness and in our ugliness and grossness, our vileness, he's with us hanging out with us, eating with us. How can that possibly be? Because this is why he came. This is why the God of eternity put himself in a human body for this reason, to save sinners. I'm not going to get into this, but he's going to talk about a bridegroom in just a second, man. And this is why he came was to enjoy a marriage supper with us. This is just a foreshadow of this amazing party we're going to have one day. Like this amazing supernatural heaven party we're going to have one day. And we're going to be having dinner with God. And the lamb is at the head of the table. That's the, that's the picture that we get in the book of Revelation and other places. And I think what's going to be amazing is that we're going to be sitting with the most unlikely people. You're thinking, well, Billy Graham's going to be there. Well, sure, Billy Graham's going to be there. I mean, my gosh, if nobody's, if anybody's saved, it's him, bro. You know, I don't know about anybody else. But it's, I know, I'm pretty sure that guy is. We're going to be sitting with the most unlikely people, a guy named John Huss, who most of you have probably never heard of. But he's one of the first people in Europe who said, we need to return to Scripture. We need to do this thing with God the way Scripture tells us to do this thing with God. We're going to sit with John Huss, William Tyndale, the Wesley brothers, Luther, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr., Jonathan Edwards, Carl Bart. Some of you are like, we're not going to eat with Carl Bart. I think we're going to eat with Carl Bart. You've got to know who that is. D. James Kennedy, if you guys, you know, you're preaching from mid-20th century. Amazing Presbyterian preacher in Philadelphia. We're going to be having dinner with these people. And it's going to be just absolutely incredible. Father Damien, does anybody know his story? He goes from the, uh, Belgium, Dutch Belgium. And he goes to Hawaii in the, in the 1850s and 70s and 80s on purpose to live with lepers. He didn't get stuck with the leper job. That's why he went there to go minister to lepers. He gets off the boat, and they have this little welcome party for him and everything. And he says, I am one who will be a father to you and who loves you so much that he doesn't hesitate to become one of you, to live with you, and to die with you. I get to eat dinner with that guy. Mother Teresa, Bono, I'm, a, I'm just saying, I think he's going to be there. Tim Tebow. Yes. Rosaria Butterfield. An avowed atheist lesbian who the Lord just reached down and got her as an adult. If you've never read her stuff, you need to. It's really amazing. I'm eating dinner with her. Peter Hitchens. Some of you know Christopher Hitchens. God save this guy. I have atheism, man. Chai Ling, Tiananmen Square. She's the first student who stood up in Tiananmen Square many years ago. Was not a believer then, is a believer now. I'm going to have dinner with that girl. Stood up in front of tanks. 
Here's one that's going to blow your mind. Some of you are going to argue with me on this one. Jeffrey Dahmer. Amen. God, if there's hope for me, there's hope for that guy. If there's not hope for him, I don't have any hope either. David Berkowitz, son of Sam. Moses, murderer. David, adulterer, murderer. Abraham, liar, habitual liar. Paul killed Christians. I'm going to be eating with these guys. I get to be there. Nobody's going to be going, I can't wait till Joe shows up. I'm just telling you, there's people who are going to, holy crap, you made it? <laughs> there's going to be a lot of that. <laughs> We get to be at this dinner table with these people who none of us should be there. Not one of us should be there. And we get to eat in this place. Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners. And that's us. And we get to have dinner and fellowship with him forever. The most unlikely dinner party ever. He said, then there's just no way that this can happen. Jesus would agree with you. <laughs> There's no way this can happen. <laughs> Look at verse 18, and he tries to explain it. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They fasted twice a week. And they come and they say to him, Hey, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Not only that, you're not only not fasting, you're having a party. We have a real issue with this. Jesus says to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he's, telling, he's talking to us about what's going to happen, who he is, this bridegroom party that we're going to have for eternity. Then he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into new wineskins, and we're like, oh my gosh, he slipped into Confucianism. I don't know what he's talking about, right? He just went into the whole Chinese fortune cookie thing, and I don't get what he's saying anymore. So let's just kind of reconnect our minds a little bit, all right? And recalibrate and see what he's saying. So these religious people come to him, and they're very uncomfortable with what's happening. He's parting with these people. They're not fasting. And they're, they're like, there's no way God's pleased with this. There, there's just no way. How can this possibly be? How can sinners have this relationship with someone who's supposed to be godly? It's like, there's no way this is from the Lord. And he, this is like his whole point. This is what he's trying to get across to them. He's like, I didn't come to reform your old system. I came to do away with it. I didn't come to you and tell you that you can be good and get a little bit of what I'm saying and then get to God, I'm telling you that your attempts at being good are worthless. I'm telling you that your religious system can't get you there. I'm telling you that your brokenness will always keep you away from God. And as long as you think that it's about religion or trying hard, you will never get to God. So I have to do something completely new. I have to do something completely unseen ever before. I don't want to revitalize. I want to recreate. You can't pour the gospel into things that can't hold it. He's like, I didn't come to reform Judaism. I came to revolutionize it. He didn't come to fix up old hearts, but to give us a new hearts. This new wine, man, it's a celebration of marriage. It's a new relationship. Old Testament, a lot of times when you see God talking about himself as a, our husband, he's sad because we're adulterous. It's like I married you and you're chasing after everybody but me. And it, he's sad. Here in this story, we get this awesome story that Jesus is representing God saying, dude, we're having a party because I'm bringing my bride home. I'm bringing my people to me, right? So it's this whole celebration thing that he's getting into. It's like the cup of God's wine of wrath is going to come on me so that you, can I, you and I can enjoy a cup of celebration. I'm so happy. Just think about this. He looks at these people and he's like, I'm so happy to have you for my bride. I'm so happy that you're going to be mine. And we're going to celebrate that. 
He's saying, listen, your old way of living, your old way of thinking about how to get to God, how to fix your hearts, it is completely incompatible with the gospel. You can't take the gospel and patch up your work and your way to get to God because that ruins the gospel. The minute I say, Jesus died on a cross and I have to be really good, then I get to go to heaven. I screw up the gospel. I ruin it. The the gospel has to stay pure. It has to just be, Jesus did it. I trust that. I believe that. I'm going to cast my entire life on that, my eternity on that. I'm going to do good because of that, but not to get it. It has to remain and retain its pureness. Jesus is like, you can't take the gospel, patch up your work, and get to me. Your hope has to be in me alone. So I think here, like we just sang, this is amazing grace, and that's what's happening through our mouths, but I think somewhere in the back of our heads and our hearts, we're singing tradition. Remember Fiddler on the Roof? We're singing tradition, you know? Or we're singing, I did it my way. That's the song that's echoing somewhere inside of us where our words are singing amazing grace. And Jesus is like, those two songs are incompatible. Your old way of doing it and your way of doing it without me don't work. Gospel, my work, who I am, trust me. You can't put a little bit of gospel or Jesus or spirit or church into your life and keep on doing the same things. And some of us are overtly sinful. Some of us in this room, we're not kind of sinful. We don't mess up every now and then. We're like, we're overtly sinful. Then we go to church to make up for it. Or we do something good to try to balance the scales. So Jesus is like, listen, you can't just tack a little bit of me onto your life and expect everything to be okay. That's not the way this works. It's a complete trade, a reversal, a recreation. Can't do do-it-yourself soul reform. And expect the kind of change that I'm talking about. Jesus brings a newness, which has to be in us in order for God to do his work in us. So he says throughout the New Testament, there's a new birth. There's an old that has to be taken off and a new that has to be put on. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And that new life is a life of faith. And it involves perpetual change. I don't want to just stretch this new wine thing too far, but I really think this is what Jesus is alluding to. I think he's telling us, listen, I'm about to do something in you that's going to go on for eternity, and as long as you hold on to your way of trying to get to me, you can't hold what I want to do. As long as you hold on to the idea that you can reform yourself, and you can be good enough, and you can work your way to me, and you can go to church and earn enough gold stars, my new work in you can't take root. It can't take hold. I've got to get all of that out and replace it. Got to discard it for what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Some of you are like, man, Joe, I just want to rest, man. You know, this sounds like more work. (laughs) And I just want to rest. So here's what I'd say. We're going to have seasons in our spiritual walk when we're just going to rest and we're going to sit in the lap of our Father and we're going to hear about His love for us. We're going to love on Him. And that's going to happen sometimes. But I think we can daily rest, daily rest, knowing that we are his and he's done the work and we can work daily, restfully, making choices to put off the old and put on the new. We're told to do, we're commanded to do that. But I can rest knowing his work is in me. It's happening in me. He's doing his work in me. I'm going to go along with it. I'm going to make major adjustments in my life to join the work that God's already doing in me. That change isn't dependent on me. It's his work, and my choices flow out of that. Tozer said this, and I'll be done. He said, A religion, even popular Christianity, could enjoy a boom altogether divorced from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and so leave the church of the next generation worse off than it would have been if the boom had never occurred. I wonder a little bit if we're not experiencing that in America here in the last 25 years. I believe that the imperative need of the day is not simply revival, but a radical reformation that will go to the root of our moral and spiritual maladies and deal with the causes rather than the consequences, with the disease rather than the symptoms. Let's remember that God has set principles in us and he's given us his word and we're supposed to live by those things and practice those things. 
But I really believe, guys, that God is looking for a local church who would carry his kingdom as a fresh, new expression of his work. I really think that's what God's looking for. Not a church where you come and you're comfortable necessarily or where you feel like you get everything met and all your needs are filled up and you feel wonderful every week. I think God's looking for a group of people who will say, I am submitted to your new work. I will do and change and take off, cast off, leave, get up and follow you wherever that takes me so that you'll do a new work in me and that I can be your representative of a new thing to the world around me that's dying. When we get set in our ways, stuck in our ways, we can't find new ways to worship God or new ways to make disciples or new ways to reach the lost, we become like that old garment. We become the old wineskin and we can't handle the new thing that God's doing. And then I think we get the biggest insult of all. We become irrelevant to the watching world and we become impotent in the kingdom of God. We have to have a new wineskin. We have to be made new so that we can handle the new work of God. God wants to do something new in us today, right now. I firmly believe that. He wants to do something new in you today. But we are clinging to our old things. And we're like, oh, just patch me up. Just put a little patch on that. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Instead of thinking about God... Like he's saying, do this to get to me. We have to change and hear him say to us, I have come to you. Walk with me. Follow me. Do life with me. (laughs) You guys bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to close in worship. And we're going to think more about this new wine and what it means to follow him like this and what it means to become this new work of God. I don't know what that means. I do think there's a bit of a mystery to this. I don't know exactly what this means. I can just kind of guarantee you that God is doing something new. Behold, I am doing something new. Will you even be aware of it? That's what he said in Isaiah. Would you begin to just talk to him? Lord, I am holding on to the past a little bit. I'm holding on to an old way. I'm holding on to something that happened yesterday. And it was wonderful and good. and, And it worked for a time. God, I don't want to miss the new thing that you want to do in me. I want to be the person you want me to be, first and foremost. Do your new work in me. Change me. Fill me up with your new wine, Lord. But recreate me so that I can hold it, whatever this new thing is. Will you submit yourself to that? Like Just like Matthew did, these men that he said, follow me, they had to submit to him. And do it his way. Will you submit to him? There's a new work. There's new wine. There's new things that he wants to do in you. The first thing you have to do is do what Matthew did. You've got to get up and follow him. This idea of God doing something new is awesome. The first thing he has to do is recreate your soul. You are dead and dying in your sins can't get to God without Jesus. You have to call out to him. I will come to you. I'll do it your way. I trust you. And all the rest of us who say I'm already following Christ, do a new work in me. That's our prayer this morning. New wine. God, do these things in us. Remake us so that we're able to contain and then take out with us into this lost world that you came to save. The new work of the Holy Spirit in us.